All right, welcome to our Zoom presentation on Wednesday nights, and we'll begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, instruct the hearts of the faithful. By the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for, pray for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So we're going to begin this evening, and we are fortunate to have two guests with us. We have both Robert Sisko and John Salsa, the authors of that wonderful book, True Pope, False Pope. And of course, we've introduced them before in the past. Uh, John Salsa in particular is well published. Uh, and of course, Robert Sisko has also done a number of wonderful articles, but they really have spent a lot of time and a lot of effort putting together a wonderful book in that True Pope, False Pope. And tonight, we're going to look at the issue of the legitimacy of Pope Francis I's pontificate. And uh, just to let people know that Pope Emeritus Benedict, the, Pope, the Emeritus Bishop of Rome, is no longer the Pope. And that's important. Um, so we'll begin with that particular topic today. In the Old Testament, in the first book of Kings to be exact, the Lord grants Israel its first king, namely King Saul, who was of the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul is a very tall and strong figure who becomes filled with the Spirit of God after being anointed by the prophet Samuel. And King Saul has a penchant for disobeying the directions of the good Lord. And as a result of his sin, Saul is rejected as king by the good Lord, and David, the son of Jesse, a man after the heart of the Lord, he is chosen in his place. Yet despite being the chosen one to lead God's people, David will not usurp the throne of Saul. He will not revolt against King Saul. David is handsome. He's a charismatic personality. He's filled with courage, and he gains the allegiance of many people, especially with his killing of Goliath, the giant Philistine, as we know, and the sworn enemy of the Hebrews. King Saul is filled with jealousy and rage and seeks a number of ways to kill David. Twice, he seeks to pierce David through with a spear. King Saul also offers his daughter in marriage to David, but only at the cost of killing many Philistines and endangering his life in the process. King Saul is truly possessed by a demonic spirit and even consults a witch to gain knowledge. But despite all these attacks and dangers, David remains on the defensive. He protects himself, of course, but he never seeks to kill King Saul. And further, gathering an army of men about him, David becomes a fugitive on the run from Saul. And on two occasions, David has an easy opportunity to kill Saul, and yet he will not. 
No one but the good Lord is to take out the one he had anointed. David will await until the Lord removes Saul from the scene. David will not ascend the throne until the time has come according to the workings of divine providence. Saul was David's king no matter how wicked Saul was. And this title of king rendered the person of Saul inviolable. Now, on February 11th, 2013, Pope Benedict XVI announced his abdication from the throne of Peter. At the end of that month, Benedict would no longer act as the Bishop of Rome and the visible head of the mystical body of Christ on earth. This unprecedented move, this simply retiring, resigning from the office due to age and infirmity, certainly has damaged the papacy in some way. On March 13, 2013, at 7.13 p.m. Rome time, white smoke arose from the chimney of the Sistine Chapel announcing the election of a new pope, Abemus Papa. No voting cardinal, not even the canon law expert and former prefect of the Vatican's highest court, Cardinal Burke, ever questioned the legitimacy of Benedict's resignation or the legitimacy of Francis's election. And to this day, that is still the case. No voting cardinal has ever clamored for his resignation. Like David, Cardinal Burke sees with the eyes of faith. He embraces this mysterious working of divine providence. He would defend the faith, of course, but never being the aggressive agitator or the revolutionary. Now, just to get back to David and Saul just for a bit, there was a hot-headed advisor that David had in the Old Testament. David had a friend of his called Abishai. And Abishai many times would always tell David to kill Saul, take him out and take the throne, that revolutionary spirit. But our Lord would never listen to Abishai. And certainly David would never listen to that revolutionary spirit of Abishai. But in regards to this modern age, what David said long ago applies here. David said to Abishai regarding King Saul, quote, do not, king, do not kill Saul, for who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? But despite all the examples of Cardinal Burke and the obvious legitimacy of Pope Francis I's pontificate, various Abishais have arisen, hot-headed, unthinking, and revolutionary in their mindset, they aggressively attack the legitimacy of Pope Francis's pontificate. They draw dogmatic conclusions with an arrogant air of pseudo-infallibility. And sad to say, even a bishop has fallen prey to this insanity, albeit a retired bishop. But to end, what did Pope Benedict XVI actually say in his resignation speech 
of February 11th, 2013. For his words will give us not only his intention, but also demonstrate the objective act of leaving the throne of Peter vacant. Benedict stated the following, quote, for this reason, and again, let's listen to these words, for this reason and well aware of the seriousness of this act, with full, with full freedom I declare that I renounce the ministry of the Bishop of Rome in such a way that as from the 28th of February, 2013, the See of Rome, the See of St. Peter will be vacant and a conclave to elect the new Supreme Pontiff will be convoked by those whose competence it is. Very clear, straightforward in terms of the statement of Benedict. So seeing how clear Benedict was, it is no wonder that a good priest friend of mine stated to his parishioners lately that any notion that Benedict is still Pope is clearly an insane position to take. And furthermore, the notion of this divided papacy that some people speak of, a daring duo of men in white carrying out a combination of both active and passive aspects of the papacy is equally insane. Now, we know that there has been some issues, that the present pontificate is a bit difficult at times, isn't it? But let's not have that Abishai revolutionary spirit. More than a few Catholics are falling a prey to that, and know this, that this notion of denying the legitimacy of Pope Francis's pontificate could lead to the notion of sedevacantism, which both John Salsa and Robert Sisko are very much experts in that topic. So I'm gonna to try to work here for a bit. I'm not sure if you're seeing everybody on the screen or not. Um, hopefully you are. Um, Thing here, but I just wanted to work on this just a bit. Well, okay. Well, hmm. Let's see here. Okay, hopefully, you all can see us. If that's not the case, yes, here we go. I think you can see us now. That's good. All right, um, let's begin. We looked at this notion that Benedict certainly did renounce the see of Peter and that he left it empty. And therefore he called for a conclave to elect a new Pope, fairly clear. But I wanna basically show just how clear and how legitimate the notion of a papacy is when it's accepted by the membership of the church. So maybe one of you could comment on a particular commentary, an official commentary on a profession of faith written by Pope John Paul II. And that commentary was written by Cardinal Ratzinger 
And one of the elements in that commentary was the notion of accepting the papacy of a pope based upon the universal acceptance of the faithful and how that is really a sign of its legitimacy in itself. So would someone want to comment on that? Sure, Father, I, I can do so. Um, first of all, Pope Benedict's resignation cannot be any clearer, but any efforts to poke holes in it are really misguided. Um, not only because people aren't privy to all the facts, but most importantly, because as you mentioned, once a new pope is elected and has been accepted by the church from the moment of his acceptance, any defects, any canonical irregularities, any shenanigans that may have taken place, uh, as Cardinal Bio says, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, all those defects are healed in the root, okay? Um, and, and I wanna give a little more background on that because what we're talking about here is an object of the faith itself. We're not talking about that we reason our way into believing that Francis is the Pope, but rather the fact that he's the Pope is an object of the faith itself. I can't emphasize that enough, that in order to maintain communion with the Holy Catholic Church, we must accept the pontificate of Pope Francis. If we reject it, we no longer remain in communion with the church. The doctrine, Father, that you articulated, universal and peaceful acceptance, is the common teaching of the church. Robert and I quote from 40 different theologians over the last 400 years, and it even predates that. So. You mentioned the, the, the professio. I, I can start with that. As you said, in, in 1989, John Paul II wrote a profession of faith. And uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger, the very man that some of these people claim is the Pope, explained the importance uh, of accepting legitimacy of an election. And in the professio, uh, what he did is he categorized, uh, or he set forth three categories of truths, okay? Uh, the first was uh, dogmas of the faith. The second was teachings uh, that are to be definitively held, teachings that the church definitively holds but have then not been revealed. Okay, so the first is revealed truths. The second is uh, decrees that are definitively taught by the church. And then the third would be those teachings that are taught authoritatively by the church but not definitive. Notice that the first two categories regard the, the ascent of faith, of supernatural faith. In the first category, we're, we're, we're dealing with dogmas, so we're talking about faith in God revealing. In the second category, we're talking about uh, teachings uh, that are definitively proposed by the church, and hence we're having faith in the church teaching, not God revealing, but the church teaching. But both of those are objects of supernatural faith. The third, of course, is not authoritative teachings, not definitively taught, uh, we ascend to uh, by way of obedience. But I want to point out a couple things to add further uh, clarity to, to this. First, Cardinal Ratzinger in his commentary explains this second category by which the legitimacy of a papal election falls into place. And he says the second proposition is, quote, I also firmly accept and hold each and everything definitively proposed by the church regarding teaching on faith or morals. 
And then he goes on to say that every believer, therefore, is required to give a firm and definitive assent to these truths based on the faith in the Holy Spirit's assistance to the church's magisterium and on the Catholic doctrine of the infallibility of the magisterium. Okay, so guess what Cardinal Ratzinger uh, puts in this category? I'll read it to you. He says one of the truths that are held that are uh, to be held definitively is the legitimacy of the election of the Supreme Pontiff. It couldn't be any clearer than that. And he goes on to say that the consequence of rejecting the legitimacy of the election of the Supreme Pontiff is to sever communion with the Catholic Church. The reason why the Cardinal has set forth this teaching uh, is because the universal acceptance of the Pope is an act of the ordinary and universal magisterium of the church. It is a judgment of the church. And if the church could not be infallible in that judgment, how could she be infallible at all? You see, so this truly is a matter of, of the faith, an object of the faith, and that's why uh, it is considered, you know, what, what theologians call a dogmatic fact. A dogmatic fact uh, can be understood to be a secondary object of the church's infallibility. Not something, not a truth that has been revealed, but a truth that necessarily must be infallible because the revealed truth that it safeguards is infallible. You see, so in order to know that the dogma of the assumption is true, we have to know that Pius XII was a true Pope. Right, yes. yes. Uh, in order to know that the dogmatic decrees of the Council of Trent are binding, we have to know that Trent was a legitimate council of the Catholic Church. And so hopefully that gives you some context about how important the legitimacy of the election is. And, and by the way, we only have one claimant to the papacy today. It's not as if we're in the great Western schism where we have two or three. There is only one claimant to the papacy. And that is why Francis was immediately accepted uh, by the church, beginning with the bishops. Uh, remember when we say that this is an act of the ordinary and universal magisterium, the acceptance of the church, that starts with the teaching authority, the teaching office, the teaching church, which is the bishops. The moment that the bishops accepted Francis, as John of St. Thomas and many other theologians say, the moment that that happens, we have universal and peaceful acceptance. We have infallible certitude that he is a legitimate pope. And anything that preceded the election, whether they're canonical irregularities or difficulties or any other conspiracy theories, our, our, our series are, are, are laid waste. They're, they're irrelevant because as St. John of St. Thomas and other theologians say, all the conditions that are required for the papacy are also then infallibly determined to be met. Right. I would probably add just one thing too, because it made me think of something. That charism, of course, that the Pope and the bishops in union with him have that of infallibility. The laity, of course, are not, and any of the priests are not part of the teaching church, but there is a charism of receptivity. When, when, when the faithful receive that, that infallible, dogma that they've been taught and they, they grasp it, they embrace it. So the entire universal church, lay folk and, and bishops have accepted this man as the successor of St. Peter. So um, 
that's obviously important. I didn't want to ask about this. What about those who would say, well, listen, I'm Catholic, baptized Catholic. I accept the Catholic Church. I just don't accept its visible head. Why, why does that not work? Any thoughts on that? Those who maintain that they're Catholic, but they don't accept the visible head of, of the church? Right. So somehow they're, they're making a distinction where, you know, I'm a Catholic. I accept, you know, the Catholic church, the true church outside there's no salvation, but sure. I don't accept that visible head. He's illegitimate or whatever. Well, that, that's an exercise of, of, of private judgment. That, that's a rejection of what, what we just said, right? The, the teaching office of the church. And as we point out in our book, popes and councils have declared that such an act is schismatic and schism separates oneself from the church. So you both can't be a Catholic and a schismatic at the same time. Right, right. So you got a visible head of that church who represents obviously Christ, the invisible head. Who could tell me again, the level of infallibility here? And so you're talking, what this, the legitimacy of the papacy when it's accepted by the faithful, when it's accepted by the people of God, what sort of level is that? Is it like a canonization level of infallibility where it's a secondary object where you know, the church you know, talks about teachings of the communion of saints and therefore can declare that some person is a saint or not? What level of infallibility, because it's not an, a dogma that's being defined, but there's something here that all those dogmas being defined rest upon, that these are real popes. Indeed. It's qualified as theologically certain. So it's a secondary object of infallibility, and the secondary objects are qualified with different degrees of certitude. So canonization, the question, are they infallible, is qualified as a common opinion. Dogmatic facts, universal acceptance of a pope, is theologically certain. It's higher than the common opinion. So it's just below de fide, it's theologically certain. It's as certain as it can be without being infallibly proposed by the church, infallibly defined by the church. Although some theologians even hold it to be de fide of the faith because it requires the assent of faith and not mere reason. True. And so I, I can name a number of theologians that call the universal and peaceful acceptance of, of a pope to be de fide. Right. And if you look at it, the night of March 13th, 2013, when our Holy Father was elected, I don't think there was really any real resistance to that. But what do you say, well, later on, though, we had some issues with him. So we're reconsidering that original election. And it we're sort of looking back on it because we have some issues now. How do you answer that person? Well, the theologians are unanimous here as well. Uh, they all say that if the election is not at once contested, as soon as the church learns of the election, we have universal and peaceful acceptance from that moment. And from that moment, the condition remains until the Pope either dies or resigns, you see. Uh, if, in fact, that weren't the case, and we could raise doubts months or even years later, 
then we could call into question every pontificate and every doctrine that flowed from that pontificate, you see? So it's, it's not only a matter of theology, but it's a matter of common sense that if the election is not at once contested, we have acceptance. So once he's been accepted as Pope, bang, he's Pope. And no reconsideration later is not uh, sort of acceptable. He might not be a good Pope, but you're, you're stuck with him. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Pope and the Candace Warns with all, the famous Candace, they address the issue of a doubtful Pope. So some will say, I accept the peaceful universal acceptance, but it doesn't apply in the case of Pope Francis because he's a doubtful Pope, and the Candace teach a doubtful Pope is no Pope at all. So Father Warns and Vidal address that. They say that a doubtful Pope can be understood positively or negatively. Positively is when the church has declared this election is doubtful. Negatively is when the election was never accepted by the church. So if you have two popes elected the same day, like Anacletus and Nicholas II, uh, those were both doubtful popes from the very beginning because they weren't universally accepted. He goes on to say, Warren Vidal, that a doubtful pope is not a pope who was at once accepted and then whose, whose election became doubtful at a later time. He said that's not a doubtful because he was already universally accepted. So the universal acceptance means he's not a doubtful pope. He doesn't become a doubtful pope after the universal acceptance. Right. Well said. Robert, I think that you had um, in your book or maybe an article, you had these wonderful syllogisms regarding the legitimacy, not just of Francis's election, but the legitimacy of Benedict's resignation, the fact that that was done lawfully and properly. Do you remember some of those syllogisms and how that sort of all leads to the conclusion that Francis is legitimate and Benedict stepped down as no longer Pope? Syllogism would be Francis' election was, was accepted by the entire church, so that proves that he's a pope. Since in order for him to have become pope, the papacy had to be vacant, it proves the papacy was vacant at the time, and therefore that Benedict's resignation was valid. So the universal acceptance proves Francis was pope. Therefore, it proves Benedict's resignation was valid because it would have had to have been valid for him to have become pope. That's the syllogism. Right. And just to remind our, our good listeners, remember, syllogism, you had these propositions, right, and a conclusion, and you accept those first two propositions, then the conclusion you have to accept, logically. So um, this all proves both uh, the legitimacy of Francis's election and also the legitimacy of uh, Benedict's stepping down, resigning, uh, renouncing the throne of Peter. And, and, and Father, to, to follow up on what Robert said, it's important to also underscore that uh, the fact that he's a true Pope is what causes the acceptance. The acceptance is an effect. The cause is Christ joining the man to, to, to the papacy that then causes the, the acceptance, Christ being the formal cause of, of making the man a Pope, but then the fact that he is the true Pope brings about this acceptance. It's not that the people ratify him as the Pope by, by some you know, democratic vote. No, it's the fact that 
he's Pope, which infallibly causes the acceptance of, of a practical unanimity of the church. Right. Well said. Well said. Um, to look at maybe some of the individuals who have brought up objections to sort of sort of answer these objections. And just, just to begin, there is some confusion. And I think we have to admit that there's been some confusion in the minds of the faithful uh, because we've never really seen this before, <laughs> where you seemingly, in terms of your senses, you see two men in white. Um, and then just recently, I was telling this to Robert, I was watching a video uh, called Rome Reports every few weeks. You know, there's like video of an update on happenings in Rome. And it announced, you know, Benedict's birthday. And then it added, with Benedict's birthday, he is the oldest pope to ever reign as pope. Older than Leo XIII now. And you're saying, well, he hasn't been pope for seven years. <laughs> So, but this, and I think even of uh, a good priest down in uh, the Carolinas, uh, 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 Father Longenecker, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, I mean, a, a good priest in many ways. And I remember a couple years ago, he would say, isn't it great to have two popes? <laughs> and, uh, you know, one sort of acting as sort of the monastic prayerful warrior on top of the mountain like Moses, and of course, uh, Francis, like a Joshua in the valley below with the Amalekites. And, you know, two men wearing white, um, you know, obviously one of them keeping the title, albeit emeritus, but, you know, Pope Emeritus, um, having a separate throne from the other cardinals. Uh, even Benedict has a separate throne. It seems lower, of course, than that of Francis, but it just seems very, very confusing. So, if we want to look, one thing that they really point to is sort of this resignation statement where he's renouncing, well, they have this sort of, they become Latinist. Everybody's a Latinist now. Everybody's a canonist. Everybody's a Latinist. And so he's renouncing the, I forget what it is. Is it, He's renouncing the munus, the office. The ministerium. The ministerium. So he's denouncing the ministerium, but keeping the munis. Is that what the well, Latin? He doesn't say keeping. He just says he's renouncing the papal ministry, the ministry of the Bishop of Rome. So they will say in response, we'll see, he didn't renounce the office, the munis. He renounced the ministry. And they say, therefore, it's invalid. He has to, according to canon law, they say, to be valid, he has to renounce the, the office. Well, canon law never says you, he has to use the word munis. Right. What it says, if a pope resigns his office, what's required for validity is that he, his resignation is freely made and properly manifest. doesn't say he has to use the word munis. Now, the word ministry or ministerium has basically the same meaning as office, as munis. If you look in a, a Latin English dictionary, it will define the ministerium as office. So it's essentially the same word. So if you, if you distinguish between the substance and the accidents of words, the substance of the meaning, the accidents is a term used to describe the meaning. So you are to convey the meaning. So you can refer to the chalice or the cup in mass, both have the same meaning. I can refer to my car as an automobile, same meaning, different accidents, same meaning. So in this case, 
munis and ministerium essentially have the same meaning, office. It's just different word to use to convey the meaning. So canon law does not say he has to use the word munis. He just has to properly manifest he's resigning the office. And he did just that. Everyone understood him to be resigning the office. Mm -hmm. And the other thing he did is, is he said he's leaving the see of Peter vacant. The way uh, Pope Benedict interpreted ministerium is the see of Peter, uh, which is about as global of a description of the papacy as you could possibly have, right? And that's right in the, in the uh, Declaratio as well. Right. Now, what I suspect is that Benedict believes personally that if he renounces the papacy, he still retains some type of spiritual connection to the papacy, some type of ministry of prayer. So he, he renounced clearly the jurisdiction, the act of ministry, but I believe he thinks that he retained a spiritual connection. But let's just say that he's right. Let's just say that when a pope resigns, he retains a spiritual connection with the duty to pray. Well, the one, the person that's the Pope is the one who has the papal jurisdiction. Benedict renounced the papal jurisdiction, doesn't claim to possess it. Francis has it. So even if he has some sort of connection to the papacy, which I don't think, but maybe he does, who knows, it doesn't matter. He's not the Pope. He doesn't have the jurisdiction, doesn't claim to have the jurisdiction. I guess we can emphasize, too, there can only be one Pope. Right. <laughs> one Pope at a time. <laughs> Uh, it's a monarchy, right, in many ways. So, uh, of course, Christ is one, and his visible vicar is going to be one. Um, so, uh, that notion of jurisdiction. So, what, first of all, again, if you could tell us what that sort of means, this notion of this moral and universal jurisdiction in the case of the Pope, and how, you know, only one Bishop of Rome is going to have that um, given to him to watch over and to guide all the faithful on earth and actually all the potential uh, members of the church as well as a spiritual head. So what is this notion of jurisdiction again? Well, Father, jurisdiction uh, is the power to legitimately exercise authority over another. And all jurisdiction uh, comes from Jesus Christ to the Pope. Uh, the moment that uh, the Pope uh, accepts the pontificate after his election, Christ then bestows universal and plenary jurisdiction to him. And it's only through him then that jurisdiction goes out to the rest of the church, church to the bishops, as many popes, including Pius XII, have, have taught repeatedly. I, I love the way John of St. Thomas talks about this. He talks about the fact that uh, the election um, presents the matter, okay, which is the individual who is eligible to be Pope. But that's all the election does. After all, election, we're dealing with human law and, and, and canon law. So from the election produces the matter. But once that man accepts uh, the election, Christ then joins that matter to the form, which is the papacy. And the form of the papacy is universal jurisdiction. That's the formal aspect of the papacy. And so you see how these things fit together. And as you said, there's only one Pope, there's only one invisible head, only one visible head through which, through whom all jurisdiction then comes out and flows to the rest of the church. So no team papacy. No, <laughs> never. Nope. Um, I, I did want to, I was talking to Robert about this earlier. Um, 
they both wear white, that's true. But Benedict does not wear what's called the Mosetta, which is that little shoulder cape, actually a very large shoulder cape that the Pope wears over his shoulders, obviously. And that's important because even for a regular priest, if he's not a pastor, a diocesan priest, he's not supposed to wear a shoulder cape because that's a sign of jurisdiction. Mm. So the fact that he didn't wear or took off the Mosetta is he took off that weight of being the head of the church, visible head, um, in terms of that papal universal jurisdiction. And also the, even the red shoes, these little small things, which I think Benedict knows about, obviously our president, Holy Father, does not wear them. They're not required to be Pope, but they are a symbol. And the kings of Rome, the ancient kings, even before the coming of our dearest Lord, always wore red shoes. So it's, it's a sign that you are the king of Rome, you know. Um, so those are, good, those are good points, Father. I, I would also even add that even if Pope Benedict somehow intended to divide the papacy, even if Pope Benedict has an erroneous understanding of the papacy, even if Benedict still thinks he's Pope, he ain't Pope because of the doctrine of universal and peaceful acceptance. That's the whole point. So, you know, whether his intentions were, you know, were X, Y, or Z, it, it really doesn't matter. And I do want to read this quote from Cardinal Beale because it is so important and I have it now in front of me. For the aforementioned adhesion of the church, the universal acceptance of the church, heals in the root all fault in the election and proves infallibly the existence of all of the required conditions, mm -hmm. beginning with he's a male, he's baptized, and he freely, ultimately freely resigned, right? So that a new pope could, could be elected. So um, that hopefully provides more clarity. It doesn't matter what Benedict even intended or means, because we have UPA, we have a new pope. And I think that what you said too, there's been a universal acceptance, not just of Francis's pontificate from the faithful, the bishops, and so forth, but a universal acceptance of the resignation of the previous book. <laughs> it's both are sort of signs that this is the reality. Francis is Pope and Benedict is not. Yes, and e even though, Father, there doesn't have to be acceptance of the resignation, right? Under canon law, so, on, so long as it's done freely and voluntarily, it doesn't matter if it's accepted. It does not matter if the entire church says, please, please, Pope Benedict, continue to be Pope. He, right. He's not. Well said. Well said. Um, so again, to kind of, doesn't matter, all these objections, not just munus versus mysterium, but also this, these sort of like uh, intrigues before the conclave opened or before the conclave uh, began its process of electing, all of these sort of, you know, even if there were, you know, bribery perhaps, once, so how do you answer that again? Just to emphasize, all these movements of men to try to corrupt things, What's the answer again to all of these issues? It's the same as the same answer as before, right? It's the syllogism. Yes. If there's universal acceptance, it proves that he was Pope. Therefore, it proves that the shenanigans that may have occurred didn't invalidate the election. Right. And it also um, means that Christ is not going to allow the entire church to follow a false Pope. And he is certainly not going to depose a Pope secretly for heresy or other or some other type of, of defect you see so they 
they fit hand in hand. We might want to mention, Father, too, when we talk about universal acceptance, we're, we're not talking about an absolute mathematical unanimity. Of course, that's not required. The theologians generally use the terms moral unanimity or practical unanimity, but it's a unanimity by which we know that this is the definitive judgment of the magisterium. Right. Well said. Now, this sort of thing where a lot of people are saying that, uh, well, not a lot, but a number of people are saying, I'm not a set of acanthus, of course. I just think Benedict is still Pope, and I reject this present papacy. If you could maybe walk through this, how in some cases this, again, I'm going to try to say the word sede benedicciplanism, <laughs> fancy word to say that Benedict still fills the seat. This could lead for a person to become a set of and actually lose the faith. And it does <clears throat> for a couple reasons. First reason is the theologians teach that rejecting a pope who's been universally accepted is a mortal sin against the faith. Well, that causes a loss of the virtue of faith. So that's one point. Second point is that, practically speaking, when the people reject Francis for Benedict, what happens next is they start to use this set of Acantus arguments to prove that Francis didn't pope. So they are, start reading those arguments, become familiar with them, and using them to prove Francis is the pope. Well, what happens next is they then look to Benedict and they see what he's written in the past. For example, he's been on record for over 50 years denying the physical resurrection of the body. In his book, Introduction of Christianity Near the End, he explicitly denies the resurrection of the body. It's been in print for over 50 years. It was reprinted in 2001, I believe, with a four from Cardinal Ratzinger. It's still in there. So they start looking at these things saying, wait a minute, if Francis, if these set of against arguments prove Francis and Pope, well, they also prove Benedict is the Pope. So then they reject him, then they become full-blown set of acantus. And a full-blown set of acantus is not someone that thinks the sea is vacant. It's someone who believes the church has defected in 1958. That's really what set of acantus. It's really, set of acantism is a continuation of the old Catholic heresy. The old Catholics rejected papal infallibility after Vatican I. And then to prove infallibility was false, they would extend infallibility beyond what the church had defined. Then they would go back in history and find historical examples of popes who erred and say, see, they erred. Therefore, they contradict the problem of infallibility. Therefore, the dogma is false. That's the old Catholics. Instead of a can't do the same thing, but for a different reason. They extend infallibility beyond what the church teaches not only papal infallibility, but conciliar infallibility and the infallibility of the ordinary universal magisterium. They extend beyond what the church teaches, and they use that then to prove the current popes are not popes, just as the old Catholics did so to produce, to so-called prove the dogma was false. Instead of a cancer, it's the same tactic to prove the recent popes are false by extending it beyond what the church teaches. And then they end by concluding exactly what the old Catholics did after Vatican I. The old Catholics concluded that the magisterium, the Pope, and the bishops with them defected. Exactly what the set of Acantus concluded. The Pope and the bishops defected. It's a continuation of the old Catholic heresy. And the more you study the old Catholics before Vatican II, the more you see the set of Acantus are just the same as the old Catholics after Vatican II. In fact, 
the first set of acantists, or the one who's usually considered the first set of acantists, Francis Schuker, he founded the CMRI. He was actually anti-pope, anti-pope Hadrian VII. He founded the CMRI, and he was consecrated a bishop and ordained a priest one day apart by an old Catholic bishop. So he was ordained and consecrated by an old Catholic. He's a con it's a continuation of the old Catholic heresy. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, Father Chicada wrote an article. I believe it was the article of Bishop in Every Garage that he wrote and under a pseudonym, pen name. And I believe this is the article where he complains about all the old Catholics in the set of a Kansas movement. The reason is, it's just a continuation of the old Catholic heresy. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So I guess also the consequences of this, if we were to basically deny the present papacy, again, knowing that it's been universally accepted, and you're going to label, therefore, Francis by conclusion, an anti-pope, therefore he's the head of an anti-church, a false church, right? So all of a sudden, you're like in, you're just, the uncertainty, you're, you're following a false church if you believe that an, an anti-pope now heads it. And, and by, I by rejecting the uh, legitimacy of a, a papal election, it doesn't matter whether you think someone else is on the chair or the chair is vacant. The fact of the matter is, by rejecting the legitimacy of a papal elect election, you've rejected an object of the faith, which is considered a mortal sin against the faith, and you sever communion with the church. This is what all the theologians teach, and as recently as we saw with, with Cardinal Ratzinger. So, um, you know, again, it doesn't matter who you think's the pope. If you're not accepting who the church has proposed and accepts as the pope, uh, the errors leading you down that, that same road of perdition. Yes. It's, really, it's really using private judgment as opposed to the public judgment of the magisterium. The entire magisterium accepts Francis as Pope, and those who reject him are using their private judgment to reject the public judgment of the church. And the public judgment of the church is an infallible act in this case. Right. So I think what I'd like to speak about real quickly here is that people have to be very cautious in this regard in terms of their spiritual well-being if they want to save their very soul that there is a connection between the invisible head christ our lord and his visible vicar the pope that one has to be very cautious on how we treat the holy father even if there is difficulty with maybe some of the things that he has done pastorally or some of the things that he's even said or taught. What would be problematic for the Catholic, knowing this connection between Christ and the Pope? Is there, first of all, is there a special connection? And if we start denying the legitimacy of the Pope, showing tremendous irreverence towards the Holy Father, are there things that have been spoken of by saints or anything which would lead to that, that there is a punishment put upon that people or upon that person who begins to go after the person who ultimately has been chosen to be head of the mystical body of Christ, visibly speaking. Oh, there's no doubt about it. There's definitely 
a intimate connection between Christ and the Pope. Even if the Pope happens to be a, a bad person, you know, there's a, there's a quotation from the Council of Constance. The Wycliffe and Huss, their followers, rejected the Pope on the basis that they were, they were evil. And so the Council of Conscience condemned the proposition that a Pope, even if he's the son of whatever referred to him as a son of perdition, son of Antichrist, even if he's that, he's not the Pope. In other words, it's saying even if the Pope himself is an is a evil person, that doesn't mean he's not the Pope. There can be a connection with Christ and the Pope, even in the case in which a Pope is a bad and evil person. And there, the connection, if you separate from the Pope, you're separating from Christ. There is that intimate connection there. And you see the fruits of what happens when these people separate from the Pope and then begin to attack them. They become bitter. Um, I've seen it over and over again where there's almost a, a, tra a personality transformation. You, you can see it happens kind of quick. So it's definitely dangerous to attack the Pope. The answer, what we should be doing, is exactly what Our Lady of Fatima said, which is pray for the Pope. You know, if Catholics spent about a fourth of the time praying for him, that they do complaining about him and slandering him, you know, he'd probably be, we'd probably have St. Francis I on the sea right now instead of what we have. I believe, I'm I believe sure right that, Robert, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it, it goes to the practical experience that Robert and I both have had um, you know, we not only know personally know Saint of Acontis, but we also know individuals who did believe Francis was the Pope. And ever since uh, they came to the false conclusion that he's no longer Pope, there's been personality transformations unlike we, we've never expected in these people. They've once gone from, you know, docile, fervent, you know, Catholics to almost vicious, angry um, you know, Catholics without real, really any hope. And as Robert says, that ultimately leads them to conclude that if Francis is in the Pope and he's a false Pope, then he must be a head of a false church. And then they begin adopting the same errors of the state of a contest that the church really isn't visible. It's only invisible in the hearts and minds of true believers and so forth. And I think I've said on other shows, I personally believe that that's the turning point where God may then withdraw his graces. If you reject the vicar of Christ, you are rejecting Jesus Christ himself because it's Christ who has joined this man to the papacy. It's Christ who sustains him in his papacy. And a rejection of the Pope is a rejection of Christ himself. That's a dangerous situation to be in. That must, Father, explain why there appears to be a lack of faith, a lack of hope, and certainly a lack of charity and many of these people who've gone down that road. Right. Francis is a test of faith for Catholics. Just as when Christ was on the cross, that was a huge test of faith for the apostles. Well, Francis is our test of faith. Do we still retain faith in the church? Not if we reject Francis. He's right. a test right. of faith. Well said. Um, I think, too, um, I mean, I think, Robert, you've said it before, and perhaps, John, you would agree in a sense, maybe our Lord is giving us a reflection of sort of the membership of the church today in the choice of the visible head. Yeah, what, what, I, thought, what yeah. I thought is that in February of 2013, after Benedict resigned, I kind of see God as saying, I'm going to give the church 
a pope according to its own image and likeness so that the faithful can see what I see when I look at the, when I look at the mystical body of Christ. And so he gives us Pope Francis. And so the mirror walks out after he was elected and the church sees itself in his reflection and the results are what we're seeing. Catholics are scandalized um, and they're, they're being led into error. So he, he's the test of faith, but he's also, in my opinion, he's actually the Pope that the church deserves. If Christ gives us the leaders we deserve, what leader does a church deserve today? What kind of Pope does the church deserve? Does it deserve better than Francis? Will anyone say that? Yeah. No, it deserves what it has. But he's also a perfect Pope for another reason. He's the Pope. He's done what no one else can do. He has opened the eyes of Catholics who wouldn't admit any problems in the church. During the reign of John Paul II and Benedict XVI, they wouldn't acknowledge any problems in the church. Now that Francis is elected, all of a sudden, whoa, we have some problems here. We've got to fix these problems. Well, the, to have the problems fixed, you have to acknowledge the problems first, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that right? Well, they wouldn't acknowledge him before. Now that Francis is on the throne, they acknowledge him. So that's the, that's the step that was needed to be able to address these problems. So these problems will be addressed. We'll have another pope who will solve the problems. But at least at this point, we have the average Catholic now acknowledging there is a problem that needs to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And we can thank Francis Pontificate for that. If we had another Benedict XVI, can you imagine another Benedict XVI? who's been on record for 50 years denying the resurrection of the body, the great theologian, Pope Benedict, he did damage by the books he wrote before he was elected Pope. Catholics were reading these books, thinking this is the book written by the greatest theologian of the 20th century, and absorbing all these errors in his books, which are full of errors. He promotes Teilhard de Chardin. Right. Yeah. So I completely agree with what Robert is saying. And, and just to give you one example that bears this out, there's a reason why... Christ gave us Francis because Catholics should have been woke year, years ago. You know, people got rightly upset with the Pac Mama scandal, the fact that there was an idol, you know, on the Vatican grounds. Do they ever think about what John Paul II did at Assisi? Do they ever reflect upon the fact that an idol of Buddha was placed upon a Catholic altar, which is even worse, that there were prayers with pagans? Uh, other false forms of, of religious worship. I mean, this all happened right. in the 80s and, and, and 90s, and, and we didn't, most Catholics were oblivious to it. So it's good that now they're finally seeing this. And I know Catholics that are looking at this and now making a connection between Francis and his predecessors, because Let's face it, they did many of the same things that he's doing now. In fact, I would argue, even though Pope Benedict did a lot of good during his pontificate, as Robert has pointed out, one could argue, you know, given the brilliant mind that he has uh, and the fact that he was one of the council fathers, that he did more damage than anyone alive today to the Roman Catholic Church. And maybe this act of resignation is his way of, of doing penance and, and making reparation for the things that he knows that he, he knows went wrong as pontific. That's my speculation. But to say that somehow these other popes were saints and, and Francis is, is the only evil pope is nonsense. They have to look at the entire disaster that has happened since the council. Right. Well said. And I think that, so we, we obviously sort of, 
see things sort of reveal. People are more in tune with uh, things perhaps under this present pontificate, but maybe they weren't as aware as perhaps they should have been. But even then, to always remember that this still is the Holy Father. And, and like Moses, you got to be careful when we deal with him because of his position and what he's been given in terms of his office. And remember what happened to those who went against Moses. Um, first, Moses was the meekest man in Israel, a very holy uh, individual who obviously was in a very high state of prayer. Um, but the fact is when you know, the, the, the Korites and, and Dathan and others rose up against Moses, they were literally swallowed up into hell. And, and even his very sister, Miriam, uh, Moses' sister, she started giving the business in terms of questioning his position, and she got leprosy on her hand in a second. Mm. So I think we have to be aware of the problems of a particular pope, at the same time not lose that piety, that reverence, that this position, this person is, is, is owed, and, and actually should be given even now more. Because that's what I've seen. The way you retain your piety for him and don't go to the other extreme is by praying for him. Right. I've actually experienced that myself. I have, to, I have to admit that during the papacy of John Paul II, I didn't pray for him too much, and I had a lot more of a problem with him than I do with Francis. Francis, I pay, pray for him a lot more often, and it helps. It mm -hmm. helps retain the piety for the Pope. It's important. I've learned that myself through experience. That's the answer. That's why Our Lady of Fatima said, pray much for the Pope. Pray much for the Pope. You need to pray much for the Pope so you don't start to despise the Pope. What right. you don't do is attack the Pope publicly and vilify him and take everything he says and does and spin it in the worst possible light. That's what you don't do. You don't deny the bad things. Obviously, you have to acknowledge the problems. But by praying for him, you don't become bitter and you don't end by hating him. Mm -hmm. And that's where you'll end. You'll end by hating him if you focus on all the bad and look at everything in the worst light. Well said. I did want to uh, go and take some questions if it's okay from the folks who are viewing this. Um, we have about five or six questions now. But one last question for me, um, and it's sort of like off topic, but I think it's connected. When the usual channels, the ordinary sort of pastoral care that should be given by the Holy Father, by the local ordinaries, the bishops, even by a regular pastor at a, at a parish church, when that might be lacking, people look elsewhere in many ways. And I just see this growth in what I would just call... Um, I don't know, we'll call them mavericks, whether it's, whether it's certain priests or certain individuals who speak like as if they're speaking in the name of the whole church and people flock to them. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they're sort of leaving sort of, I guess, I'm not going to say they're not leaving the flock, but they, they seem to be flocking towards those who are personalities as opposed to seeing that there are established sort of hierarchical structures that are also in place too, that the good Lord is going to work through in many ways. Um, I mean, the Holy Father can still be worked through by the good Lord to, to accomplish things. But I do see this where 
people are really flocking towards various personalities who are tearing down various bishops or tearing down various popes or whatever. And I just wonder if, if, if there's some connection here uh, with this mindset where total lack of trust, that ecclesiastical faith, John, that you mentioned, this is, this is ecclesiastical faith. To, to, to the legitimacy of this papacy is based upon an object of faith. Correct. Um, so when you begin to question that a bit, are you going to pro- perhaps lose the faith and maybe seek guidance or seek from, from whatever, so wh- whoever is the newest personality on the block? No, no question you're vulnerable because if you lose the virtue of faith, you lose hope and, and charity. And now you're an instrument of, of, of the devil. You're, you're vulnerable to, to attack. But when you, when you talk about Francis, I completely agree with what you gentlemen said about, you know, loving him, respecting him and praying for him. Also know that he hasn't done all bad. In fact, what he did for the Society of St. Pius X was the greatest gesture of any of the post-conciliar popes. He universally delegated faculties to all of the priests throughout the world to hear confessions and with the approval of diocesan bishops to witness marriages. The Society of St. Pius X did not have those faculties. And frankly, they couldn't rely on supplied jurisdiction for those sacraments either. Now they have universal faculties delegated by the Pope himself. So this is a tremendous gesture that Francis has done for the Society of St. Pius X. And hopefully, you know, it means that there is a reconciliation with, with the society uh, on the way. And we can't say that other popes, Benedict too did, did wonderful things. I mean, he lifted the excommunications and he, he liberated the mass and acknowledged that the mass, the old mass was never abrogated. But, but this is a real practical uh, a gesture of, of monumental importance, I, I believe, for, you know, for the sake of the, of the church and for uh, Catholicism. Also to your point, Father, so we have today a crisis in the church, and for the most part, the hierarchy is remaining silent. Okay? The faithful see the crisis now, and they're looking for someone to lead them. You know, who, where's, where's the voice? Where's someone going to lead? And so when voices then speak out, and speak about what they know is happening in the church, they flock to that person. It's understandable that they would. They're looking for a voice to, to lead them. So a voice comes out, the faithful naturally, understandably flock to them. But you have to be careful because just because they're saying things that are true and that you agree with, that doesn't make it infallible. So they can go off the deep end, too. I would also point out, if you were enemy, say you were one of these Freemasons who infiltrated the church, and you're wanting to, to um, lead people astray who have the faith, or would you not have a voice come out that says everything that they agree with so he can then draw them to himself and then gradually lead them off astray? Right. If, that's what, if they were smart, that's what they would do, and they're smart. They're not stupid. The devil's smart. So my point is, be careful with these heroes that are out there, um, you know, coming out saying things that you agree with. Right. right. But be careful and be somewhat cautious. Maybe they're good guys, but maybe they're not. So be, be somewhat cautious. Don't just blindly follow whatever they say because they're not infallible. So that's the point I'd like to make. 
Well said. Um, we have a question from one of our viewers. Should he now be called Archbishop Ratzinger or perhaps go back to Cardinal Ratzinger? Or is Cardinal a permanent title? Surely referring to him by his papal title adds to the confusion. Resign the office renounces the title, doesn't it? What do you think of that? I think that's a good point. Renouncing the office renounces the title and the name goes mm -hmm. with the title. That's a great point. So no, I don't, I don't think he should have retained the name Benedict the 16th. That's my opinion. What he should go back to, I really don't know. Um, have to look back at history. What did Celestine go back to? What did he do? Um, but a lot of them went back to, uh, to becoming, you know, if they were like Cardinal uh, Archbishop, they went back to that. Um, yeah, I, I think it's Bishop Ratzinger. I mean, he's a retired bishop, right? I mean, I guess he's a retired Cardinal too, but he is no longer a Cardinal. So I think he would simply be Bishop Ratzinger. That would be uh, my thought and, and most appropriate. And, you know, Francis could have said, uh, no, uh, you're not going to use the, the Pope Benedict. You're not going to wear white. You're not going to create this confusion for the church. But he's let this happen. After all, Pope Francis is the Pope. He's in charge. Uh, and and, and he's, he's partly responsible for this confusion, unfortunately. I would also point out that Benedict XVI, in my opinion, has an obligation to come out and clarify this issue. He's the one that resigned right? He has an obligation to come out and say, I think I'm the Pope. I don't think I'm the Pope. He needs to clarify this. Sitting <laughs> by silently as the faithful are attacking each other in a state of confusion, is that, is that good? No, that's not good. Right. He should, he should come out and clarify his thoughts on the matter so we all know. We're all speculating. Like I said earlier, I, I think he believes he has a spiritual connection to the papacy. That's pure speculation. I think he believes that but he hasn't clarified. He needs to come out, clarify what his position is, what he thinks he is, and resolve this issue. He, he abandoned the church as Pope, I'm sorry to say, he resigned. Yes. And now he's allowing this confusion to go on when he's the one that could resolve it. And he has an obligation to resolve it. He shouldn't be sitting there, you know, peacefully, you know, in his, in his uh, castle, uh, just, you know, enjoying his life while confusion reigns. He needs to come out and clarify these issues. Yeah, I think that that's uh, a good point. Now, to, in, in his defense, perhaps he is treating this like, like the Diocese of Rome, like any other diocese, the local ordinary that retires. He yeah. becomes the emeritus bishop. Uh, he usually stays in the diocese, gets a nice little house to stay and helps with confirmations. And of course, some honor, honorary titles, you know, you keep you know, the, the president, even after he is, um, you know, obviously served his time, he still sort of maintains the title, albeit no jurisdiction <laughs> over a particular country. So, but it has bred confusion and it's totally novel, right? This has never been seen before. This man, a good uh, viewer says, how does the church define, and I think John answered this, but maybe just to emphasize it, John, how does the church define universal? Father stated at the beginning that there is one bishop who does not accept Pope Francis. Does not that indicate that it's not universal? Yeah, and as we said, Father, there does not have to be a mathematical unanimity, of course. It's really 
a practical or moral unanimity when we know that this is what the whole of the magisterium, the teaching office, the bishops accepts uh, as the judgment of the church. And we might also mention that there doesn't have to be universal and peaceful acceptance for there to be a valid pope, right? This is just one way that we are infallibly certain of the legitimacy of his election. Uh, but in circumstances like the Great Western Schism, where there was a true pope and a number of false popes, and we did not have that universal and peaceful acceptance, that doesn't mean there wasn't a true pope. There still was a true pope. You see, so this, this doctrine of UPA doesn't necessarily you know, ever mean we, we don't have a pope. It's just another way of knowing that we have infallible certitude. In the case of Francis, of course, as I said, there aren't multiple claimants. There's only one claimant, and he, he was accepted uh, immediately by the church. Well said. Someone asks, does the SSPX accept the Pope? And then also adds, I understand the SSPV has split off and are set of acantists. Are there other groups as well? Do you know a lot of Catholics are still doubting that Pope Francis is not the Pope? Because I don't hear that from the Novus Ordo or trad Catholics that I run into. So, okay, so number one, does the SSPX accept the Holy Father, Pope Francis's reign? The SSPV, are they truly full-blown set of acantists or are they non-committed? <laughs> I think the SSPV now consists exclusively of Father Jenkins. Um, the nine separated from the society, and it's my understanding, form the SSPV. And then, of course, as schismatics always do, they split up and divide it amongst themselves. Now you have this SSPV, which ex exists, I think, exclusively of Father Jenkins. Father Jenkins um, acknowledges he does not have the authority to declare that the Pope is not the Pope. So he doesn't declare it. So he stops short of that. But what he does declare, think about this. He doesn't have the authority to declare the Pope's not the Pope but he does declare that the church over which he reigns is a false church. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, so he says the Novus Ordo is a false church. I think he even de um, denies communion to quote unquote Novus Ordo Catholics who come to him for communion. Right, right. So he doesn't, to answer the question, he doesn't come out and say the Pope's not the Pope. I believe he believes it, but acknowledges he doesn't have the authority to declare it. So he doesn't declare it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but of course, the, the Society of St. Pius X accepts the, the Pope. Uh, most certainly, they, they accept the Holy Father. All the priests, uh, you know, mention the Holy Father in, in, in all of their masses. You know, un unfortunately, I, I think many or most uh, Sede Vacantis came from the Society, but that doesn't reflect the Society's position. For whatever reason, this idea is somehow incubated in some of the seminaries, presumably because, as Robert said, the nine left and formed the SSPV. Others ha ha have left, but that was not the position of, of Archbishop Lefebvre uh, ever or the Society of St. Pius X. So they clearly uh, accept the Pope. And I would, you know, part of that last question no, I don't think many, many Catholics reject Francis. I don't think we're talking about, um, you know, even a material uh, minority of the church. I think this is a fringe movement. 
Uh, I wouldn't deny that it might be gaining some momentum, you know, given scandal after scandal. But I, but I do think it's 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 still on the fringe, uh, and 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 whether it, it grows or not, we'll see. But it doesn't matter how big it becomes because he was universally and peacefully accepted at the moment of his election. He's going to be the pope, no matter how many reject him. And the entire magisterium, the episcopate, still recognizes him as pope. There's still an infallible judgment that's persisted. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, and, and, and yeah, the, the questioner is, is, you know, was wanting, he hasn't heard of this in his own contacts with others. And, and I would agree, the reason I preached on it before and asked John and Robert to, to look into this is because it, it is there. And I think it's there in a sort of a nascent form in some people where, ah, boy, I wish that Benedict were still Pope, you know, mm-hmm. um, or they're just saying, you know, I don't like this new Pope. And there's sort of a mindset that I like the old Pope better. And then there is, I think, this notion that people are thinking, well, maybe he still is Pope and he's sort of being forced into hiding or forced into some imprisoned section of the Vatican. And I think a lot, more than a few people are, are, think, think like that. So I think it is an issue that we would hope to get the kibosh to. And I think there's, there's a psychological reason for this movement that is just civil pope. And that is that Catholics, if you're a good Catholic, you're a faithful Catholic, you want to be a good Catholic, you want to be with the Pope, right? You want to be in agreement with the Pope. So during the reign of John Paul II, if I would ever point out problems with things John Paul II has taught, I would get met with immediate resistance from the mainstream. They, they wouldn't hear it. They wouldn't hear anything bad. John Paul II was their pope. He was pro-life. They were pro-life. He was a pope just like them. They were with the pope. The pope was with them. Well, that worked during the time of John Paul II, and it worked during the time of Benedict XVI, but it doesn't work with Francis. With Francis, now they have a pope who they have to admit they're not with. So there's a psychological reason. They, they're not with the pope as far as being in agreement with, with everything. So it's easier for them to look for another Pope who they're with. So they revert to, to, to Benedict as a psychological reason to deal with the crisis in the papacy. I think that's a big part of it. And I, and I would say, Father, I was as disappointed as anyone when Benedict resigned. I, I so much wanted this not to be true, not only because of the overtures he was making toward tradition, you know, by freeing the mass and lifting the excommunications, et cetera. But in, in 2010, when I was in, in Rome giving a, a conference on Fatima, that's when uh, Pope Benedict revealed that the Fatima message actually relates to internal sin within the church. And that was a bombshell that he dropped. And we all had high hopes that Fatima was weighing on this Pope's mind more than any other pope. The fact that he said, if anybody thinks the prophecies of Fatima uh, are over and done with, you know, they, you know, they're, they're deluding themselves, he said. And, and to me, there's a mystery here. And I think the mystery does somehow pertain to Fatima, something that I can't explain. But the trajectory of this pontificate, I thought, was, was, was moving toward a, a, a fulfillment of Fatima, and, and perhaps it will be now with, with, these, with these two bishops in, in white. It's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty scary situation right now. Well said. Um, this is a good question from a, a listener. Um, it just, it, it, it makes sense, the symbolism. 
How do you think eliminating the ceremony of papal coronations has affected pontificates? I mean, that's the thing is, you know, coming down upon the head, the, the crown, the papal tiara, um, well, you know, it's Paul, lots of symbolism for sure. When, when Paul VI relinquished his, it was, it was scandalous. I mean, that's, that's where it started. And, and the fact that, you know, many of the, the popes in the conciliar age now are trying to divest themselves of all the trappings of papal authority and, and beauty certainly is, is problematic. It shows almost a disdain for our traditions, liturgical and, and, and otherwise. But be that as it may, right, we still have the pope, we still have a holy father, we still have the church. Let's persevere in praying for him. And let's yeah. not complain about these other things that really, at the end of the day, don't matter to our faith and our salvation. Well said. Uh, how do we balance the appearance of silence from the hierarchy about errors, like the virus, modernism, etc.? And the lay people, i.e. Michael Voris and some priests that speak out so much, what is the right way to deal with this issue in your opinion? So how do you, you get modernism out there and the hierarchy are not particularly loud in regards to speaking of that matter. And so you got some who say, well, I'll speak then if you're not going to speak. So what's the right way to deal with this in your opinion? When you got modernism and no one who truly is a shepherd or very few shepherds are actually speaking about it. Well, I, I see a problem with the problem I see is that of course lady, they see the problems, so they want to speak out and they want to help solve the problem, but they're not equipped. They're not qualified. So maybe they're attacking the problem, but do they really know what they're talking about? Are they clarifying what the church teaches? Are they inadvertently erring on certain points? So it's a difficult question to answer how to respond to it, but I know there are dangers with the laity responding and responding badly and causing more confusion. You see that a lot. So it's a difficult question to answer. What do you think, John? Well, I think, you know, referring to the scriptures, we have to speak the truth in charity uh, first and foremost. And, and, and each of us has an obligation, even as canon law imposes on every Catholic, right, to, to speak the truth in charity. And, you know, if necessary, bring our concerns to the Catholic hierarchy. This is right in canon law. Um, we have to be equipped, as Robert said, to do that. But if we are, we do have some degree of responsibility uh, uh, to, to do that. As St. Thomas says, those consecrated to God uh, are in the greater danger. And so it is a supreme act of charity uh, when done in that spirit uh, to bring our concerns to our pastors and if necessary, even correct them privately uh, to get them back on, on the right road. That is a that is a grave obligation. It's something, of course, that, that our Lord desires and the saints talk about, about constantly, but it has to be done the right way. It has to be done in a spirit of charity, not with the intention or motivation to somehow embarrass or denigrate. We see, unfortunately, some of that in the traditionalist movement, and it really turns a lot of people off. So we have to be careful about that. Yeah, well said. The last question, a person writes, um, it, is it 
really a confu- it's really a confusion that Pope Emeritus Benedict is not the Pope anymore, or is it just the insistence of deniers or those disaffected by Pope Francis's teachings that promulgate the confusion? I almost see it like those who never accepted that Trump won the U.S. presidency and will do everything to take him down. Any thoughts about that? Comparing it to, and so it's not really so much the problem with, um, uh, let's say, uh, the confusion that Benedict is sometimes a part of Moring White and Pope Francis not really telling him to sort of go back to Germany, whatever he might have said, but it's the deniers, it, 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 it's the conspiracy people that are pushing his illegitimacy, which um, can really hurt a position of authority when your legitimacy is, is, is questioned. Well, I think number one, because a resignation is so unusual. When's the last one? 600 years ago. I mean, because it's so unusual, it necessarily raises questions. So I think even if, uh, you know, Benedict were wearing blue jeans and a flannel shirt, um, there would still be questions just because of the natural curiosities of, of, of the human intellect, right? But I think when you couple that with the fact that Francis, his pontificate, unfortunately, has been so scandalous, uh, it's leading people uh, with these things kind of put together to say, I, I wish he weren't the Pope and maybe we, we, maybe Benedict is, is, is the true Pope. Just right. a, uh, Another point just worth mentioning is that when Celestine V resigned, <clears throat> there were a lot of Catholics that thought he was still the Pope. They rejected Boniface VIII and thought he was still the Pope. So you're going to, I guess, naturally have these issues when you have a novelty of a papal election. Um, so just want to mention that point. As, as a final note, this will be the last question, but just a comment. It seems that the very pillars, sort of the foundations of various, whether it's a church or even institutions in the temporal realm, um, they're shaking at this time. And it seems like we're looking for something to be more fixed. <laughs> and I think the papacy was one of those things which, you know, as the, as the universe turns, the cross stands still and the papacy is always there. The Pope is always there like a rock. And when that, when even the papacy was all of a sudden rocked, um, I think people are, what do you think in terms of being, you know, anchored and, and, and set and firm? I think people are, I think, wobbling in many ways and are, are susceptible to being sort of led in a direction because is there anything that remains the same? <laughs> you know, any thoughts on that? I was just going to say, Robert, because Peter is the foundation of, of the church, the rock of the church, the papacy has so much significance for Catholics, right? And when something goes awry with the papacy, it truly does affect us. Um, it has even affected Ratzinger by virtue of his resignation, because as Rob said, and I do believe he somehow still is holding on to a spiritual element that may or may not exist. This notion of the papacy, this reality and truth of the papacy, 
is so significant to the census catholicus, right? That when something affects it in a way that's unexpected, it really causes us to react. The question is, how do we react? How, how do we respond to these things? Well, as we say, one can err on the right or on the left, but we have to stay in the middle of the course. And that means that no matter how bad it's going to get, and I think it's going to get worse, we still have the Holy Father and we have to persevere in, in prayer for him. Any final word, Robert? I would just say the church is indefectible. The church is indefectible. The entire church, the entire hierarchy accepts Francis as Pope. So if you believe in the indefectibility of the church, you should believe that Francis is Pope over and above any private judgment on why they think Benedict is the Pope. Accept the judgment of the church and you'll be on safe ground. Yes. Yeah. I think yeah, the good Lord can't blame us. Right. And I think also, I think that uh, the good Lord allows a lot. He permits a lot. And, uh, it may be, and there's been an awful broad allowance of things of late. So, but to trust that ecclesiastical faith, which John mentioned earlier, um, we've got to trust that the good Lord is going to carry us through even in these difficult times. So let's end with a prayer. One, one, one final point. One final point. Yeah. Bruno Kornikova, Trey Fontaine um, message, approved revelations of Trey Fontaine, which you can read. Right. There's an interesting quote from him, a revelation he received, which I thought a lot about. It is that uh, he was told in the 40s or 50s that God is withdrawing, kind of withdrawing from the church, withdrawing from mankind. So just as Christ on the cross said, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Of course, he wasn't truly forsaken by God. He was a second person of blessed Trinity. But in some sense, he was, uh, God kind of withdrew, allowed, he allowed his enemies to attack him to the, any extent he allowed them. Well, Bruno said that God is withdrawing from the church. Our Lady of La Salette said the same thing. God is withdrawing. So in the passion of the church, just like in the passion of Christ, God is allowing the enemies of the church to unleash their fury uninhibited. So that's what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. But in spite of that, you have to believe the church is indefectible. And I would also say there's a lot of bad, a lot of evil around. But if you focus, why not focus on, on uh, other things like the faith, the, the beauty of the faith, reading the spiritual books, the theology, focus on that aspect, not all the problems, and you'll be much safer. You'll be able to see the errors more clearly. So I would just end with that. The church is indefectible. The church says Francis is Pope. He's the Pope. Focus more on the good. Be thankful for what you do have. If you have a good mass, be thankful for it. Don't be complaining about everything. Be thankful for what you do have and focus more on the good. The good is a doctrine of the church, the right. spiritual right. writers of the church. Focus on that and not on the bad. Right. Yeah, and, I, and I would say stay with Our Lady. Remember during the Passion, our Lord said, tonight you all be scandalized in me. These people who have rejected this pontificate have been scandalized to that point. And our Lord warns about that, just as the church is suffering her passion as, as Christ did. But what did Our Lady do? She wasn't scandalized. She was at the very foot of the cross and wished to die with her son. So she is our model. We must stay with her, the Stabat Mater. We must stay by the foot of the cross with her during this passion.
Well said, the passion of the church. So let's end with a prayer. And we again, thank you to both John Salsa and also to Robert Sisko, again, authors of that wonderful book, True Pope, False Pope. But just know that in the future, there might be a, another volume or two coming out because they've done so much research and they've revealed things of old texts and so forth that are very helpful in this difficult time. In the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son, of the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Dominus Lobiscum et Spiritu Tuo, Benedictio Nepotentis Patris et Fidii, et Spiritus Ancient et Supervos, et Mani et Semper. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, people, for tuning in. God bless. Thank you, Father.